Before we start the episode, us lizard people would like to announce a bit of news. The good, non-reptilian people at Major Spoilers have decided to include us on their network. That means, besides all the usual places, you can find us at Majorspoilers.com, along with a host of other great podcasts such as Critical Hit. If you're coming to us for the first time for Major Spoilers, greetings, salutations, and welcome. Now on with the show. You know that a man dies if he loses five pints of blood. The time is now. The place is the space between your ears. The people are lizards, dissecting the finest in science fictional and fantastical literature for all your auditory pleasures. You are now listening to Lizard People, Dear Readers. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Lizard People, Dear Readers, the science fiction and fantasy book podcast by Lizard People, for Lizard People, and other reptilian humanoids. I'm George Chimples, and with me as always is Nathan Edwards. Hello. And Peter Paris. Also hello. Or if you're a Gargomech, click were. If you're a what? A what? Gargomech. Gargomech? I don't know what that is. Like a Mecha Gargamel? There was weird aliens from the uh, Vatican episode of South Park, I think. Ah. Yeah, sorry. Might have been the Gal- I was hoping it was some sort of trash bot from like uh, Transformers, but those were like Junkicons or something? Those were Junkticons, maybe. Junkticons. All right, well, this week we are not discussing Transformers, South Park, or the Vatican, but in fact are talking about the wonderful book Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie, which was chosen for us by Nathan Edwards. And maybe Nathan would like to introduce a little bit about the plot, or the whole plot, and uh, as always, spoilers shall follow this point immediately. So if you haven't read it, go ahead and read it now. Uh, or if you don't mind spoilers, go ahead and listen now as we'll talk about it in depth. Take it away, Nathan. So the book is called Ancillary Justice. It's by Anne Leckie. It was published in 2013, and it won all of the awards, I think we can safely say. The Hugo, the Nebula, the Locust, the Arthur C. Clarke, the British Science Fiction, the Tinker, the Tailor, Soldier, Spy, all of those. Um, Some of those I made up. Anyway, so Ancillary Justice is the story of Breck who is trying to make her way back to space controlled by Imperial Raj, or Radchai space, to take revenge uh, on somebody. Uh, Along the way, sort of at the beginning of the book, she runs into Severian, who is a human officer that she'd known thousands of years earlier when Breck was a ship. Uh, So (laughs) it becomes clear fairly early on that Breck is a former ancillary, Basically, a reanimated corpse run uh, slaved to a ship's artificial intelligence. Um, Much like in Ian Banks' culture novels, ships have AI that control them, or I guess that embody them is a better term. Um, So at the at the right, the part of the novel or the time that part of the novel takes place, um, it's common for Radchai military vessels to have complements of ancillaries, basically reanimated corpses uh, from conquered human worlds that are um, basically used as ship-controlled units. Um, Ships typically have hundreds of ancillaries formed into military units. Um, So Breck used to be Justice of Torin 1-esque, which is like a... um, It basically means that when she uses the pronoun I, she could be referring to the entire ship, Justice of Torin, a unit of several ancillaries, or one or more individual ancillaries. So it's depending on the part of the book, and the pronoun I could refer to any of a, like a nesting set of... Uh, perspectives? Perspectives, yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a unit, um, one asks, she is ordered to kill civilians um, as a war crime, basically, on a recently annexed planet um, 
by the emperor of rad space or rad space that sounds awesome rad chai space rad space um and it becomes clear that the emperor um who herself has hundreds or thousands of bodies is actually at war with herself um uh, because when uh, and justice of Torin is a pawn in the civil war between the emperor um normally uh but normally the emperor is uh let's say networked to herself and like justice of Torin, when she's whole um each individual entity is aware and can respond but they're all controlled over the network basically by the main intelligence um when they are separated through network problems they only have their own individual perspectives their consciousness is basically in the cloud right um, but they it's fall back. It, yeah, it's, perhaps, perhaps peer to peer. Yes, except unlike it's like the droids from Star Wars Episode One. Except um, when they're disconnected from the cloud, they don't fall apart. They have their own um, capabilities. They're just cut off from everyone else, and they're unused to that. Um, so, the war crime that precipitates this happens as uh, the Raj Empire is liberalizing. Uh, led by one faction of the emperor, um, who nobody knows is actually at war with herself. Um, it's stopping expansion. It's decreasing the use of ancillaries in favor of like actual human units, uh, much like the empire did when it phased out clone troopers in favor of conscripts. Um, I'd also point out it, it, yes. it goes so far that the emperor herself doesn't even know that she's at war with herself because later on in the book, they take great pains to prevent the civil war from flaring up from all the emperor's essentially understanding that they're at a de facto civil war. It gets a little confusing, but yeah. it's also very interesting. Yeah. Uh, so the plot uh, basically bounces around between Breck on her own as an individual unit, looking for a MacGuffin uh, far from Imperial space, um, finding Severian, this human officer she used to know about a thousand years before, getting to know Severian and reminiscing about the events that led to her being you know, whatever event happened to take her from the perspective of an entire spaceship to that of a single ancillary unit. Um, and I think that gives a pretty good overview of the plot without actually giving everything away. Um, sure. Yeah, no, that was good. I would say that I have um, one of the interesting things about the novel, um, the many interesting things, is that I've noticed that I've introduced everybody as she. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is female. Uh, one of the things the author does is refers to, uh, in Raj... Um, language, which they're all supposed to be speaking uh, most of the time, they don't actually distinguish between people by gender. So they use the she as a default in the same way that English for a long time used he as the default for people of any gender. Um, and that that is clear as something that's only a feature of that particular language of the empire, because in other languages, um, Breck has to like think about people's actual genders to figure out what words to use. And, and, she is, and she is not good at figuring that out. No, it's really funny. Yeah, which struck me as being really odd. Um, it, it, it is a little odd at first. Um, but, I mean, I read somewhere, pointed out that, for example, Mandarin does not distinguish verbally between male and female pronouns. Um, they, they're, they're, they're different no, that characters, a... but they're not, but they're pronounced the same. So in, like, spoken Mandarin, he and she are the same word. Yeah. I don't mean that it's odd that the language would have this quality to it. I meant that Breck had trouble outside of Raj space distinguishing gender. Um, it was strange to me that this was a ship that had at a certain point been omniscient and would have had part of its many functions aside from following orders and committing war was also, you know, Pol- maintaining spaces for its officers. Policing populations, policing different populations, and also diplomatic functions, being a functionary um, once they take over pop you know once they take over planets, the ancillaries are used as police forces and also to tend towards you know they make tea, which is a big thing the Roch love tea, and they'll tend towards various dignitaries and functionaries at the behest of their human captains and so it was odd to me that they wouldn't bother to program in um you know the ability this is this is how other uh cultures cultures work yeah, yeah i'm basically. not real, i'm not real sure i mean um 
there's also a couple of points in the book where it seems like there might be might have been more genetic engineering and monkeying around in the intervening thousands of years from, you know, now till then. Like, I know at one point they mentioned weird space people who have, like, six or eight limbs. Yeah, which, at one point... And so, and I think there's a part where they mentioned that the the Radshire are kind of a little bit androgynous, maybe? I, so, um, I don't know. I do have a reading, actually, a quote. Um, George, before I read that, would you like to say what you were going to say? Well, no, there's that point where she gets rescued by those asteroid miners who have um, basically evolved themselves to a point where Breck, which is the ship, points out that um, the Radge wouldn't even view these people as being human. And she herself, even though she's inhabiting a human body, is not viewed as being human by the Radge, which actually comes into play in a very important part because the way the Radge Empire works is through taking over these worlds using this kind of patronage system to then allow um, other people in the Ratch empire to set up houses in these places and through a series of patronage get economic advantages, et cetera, et cetera. It's a familiar kind of empire building, but that it's very much like the Roman empire. It's built on the idea of citizenship. And once you're conquered, all of your people become citizens. And once they're citizens, they can't be murdered and these things can't happen to them. That's one of the reasons why this war crime is so, terrible that is the centerpiece of the book because it's a crime committed upon a conquered population who are now technically all citizens and they shouldn't be able to be killed legally by the emperor but she orders it so it happens um but this whole idea of whether or not you're human or not you have to be human to be able to be considered a citizen and that's the whole distinction between um that and there's also some language text that i thought worked better for that that i didn't uh, anyways i'm getting into farfield so go ahead and Read your thing. All right. So this this uh, passage takes place as Breck, who has been in Nod Radchai space for something like twenty years, uh, working her way back to Radchai space. She um, shows up towards the end of the book back on a Radchai space station, and she says, "I saw them all suddenly for just a moment through non-Radchai eyes, an eddying crowd of unnervingly, ambiguously gendered people." I saw all the features that would mark gender for non-Radchai, never, to my annoyance and inconvenience, the same way in each place. Short hair or long, worn unbound, trailing across a back or in a thick curled nimbus, or bound, braided, pinned, ties. Tied, excuse me. Thick-bodied or thin, faces delicate-featured or coarse, with cosmetics or none, a profusion of colors that would have been gender-marked in other places. All of this matched randomly with bodies curving at breast and hip or not, Bodies that one mo- moment moved in ways various non-Radchai would call feminine, the next moment masculine. Twenty years of habit overtook me, and for an instant I de- despaired of choosing the right pronouns, the right terms of address. But I didn't need to do that here. I could drop that worry, a small but annoying weight I had carried all this time. I was home. That's the quote. Um, there you go. Yeah. I mean, I can see, like you say... Um, that as a ship, you know, with thousands of years of experience, you'd think that she'd be better at gendering people. But if her language and culture make that uh, something that they never have to do, then, I mean, we've all probably initially misgendered people based on the, you know, and ours is a heavily gendered society, you know? Well, I could kind of see the point that bothering to program the ship with all the finer details would be considered beneath the Radchai, since... In general, they tend to be pers- or characterized as kind of pompous and imperial. The word for civilization is the same as their word for radchai. Yes. Yeah. That, see, that's what I want to get into about that, where I was going off on my tangent. The thing that annoyed me about... One of the things that annoyed me about this book, while I enjoyed the book, it got a lot of awards, it was regarded with a lot of hype... And one of the things they talked about was this gendered idea that there's no gender. It's a female centric gender or whatever in the lead up. I didn't read too much about it because I was trying not to spoil it, but that was like in the headlines, et cetera, et cetera. And to me, it never felt like there's any payoff to these ideas. And it didn't feel like a part of convincing world building because there was just no meaning. It was just every so often when Breck is going through non-Raj space, she would mention, Oh, I might be embarrassed or might get into a fight if I use the wrong pronoun. 
and would just repeatedly do that without anything ever really happening and maybe being like, oh, phew, I did use the right one or, oh, it's a kid, I'm not sure. Whereas the whole idea of the Raj meaning civilized. So if you're ratched, you're civilized. If you're not ratched, you're not civilized due to their language. And I think that played off in plot points in the story and made much more sense of understanding how Anandrami and I, the emperor, and how um, other Raj citizens saw each other, saw the other ones, and also saw these aliens, like not not non-human, like like they're actual alien aliens, like not human species, not descended from humans that are outside on the fringes that are actually working a lot of, they're driving a lot of the plot and a lot of the stuff. Anander Manai being at war with herself is driven by these interactions with these aliens from outside. I think that language stuff paid off, but when they were just doing the, I don't know what gender I'm talking to, it just was like a tick that the protagonist had that I found kind of annoying, but didn't actually mean anything about the society. I had the same problem where it would always talk about how they, wore gloves or they drank tea, which were signifiers of Raj space, but they didn't feel like effective world building to me. I never really felt fully ingrained in a different culture like you would with, say, Dune or something like that. Yeah. Well, I think it says something that we spend, what, almost two-thirds of the book without actually seeing Raj space. And it's all on the... I mean, the first... For the first part of the book, it jumps back and forth in time between the around when the the inciting incident and war crime that George was talking about happens, and later on, after Breck has nearly acquired the, the the MacGuffin she's been looking for, as Nathan said. And so it's really not until you know the last part that the jumping back and forth kind of stops, and then it's just occurring in Raj space in a single continuity or continuous... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Plot. Perspective. Perspective. Timeline. It, yeah, that. Viewpoint. But we're in a Raj person's head, and what we're seeing when we're on, I forget the name of the planet, but the planet that they're overseeing is recently conquered and has gone through annexation, and is, at that point, C- Raj space. Cisern? Erna? Something like that? But yeah. 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 Well, but then again, at the same time, we're presumably hearing all this from the perspective of an AI, so... An AI wouldn't necess- a computer wouldn't necessarily be expected to think the same way as one of the citizens, anyhow. And that comes up a few times um, where she's essentially because she's um, the remnant of an AI in an ancillary body. To most people, she just looks human, but to the Radchai, she's technically not a citizen. So a lot of the stuff that citizens would normally do, while she's perhaps familiar with protocol, because she was a ship, um, some of her ancillaries were basically just like aged a camp. Um, she was not expected to participate in. Mm-hmm. Right. Or allowed to. Well, and later on, it becomes clear that she's doing a very good job of hiding it, even when she re-enters Radchai Raj space. Yeah. But, uh... So, I don't know. It's... Yeah, I could see there's there's some stuff there. I don't know. So, um, what did you think of the layering of different eye viewpoints, going from I Justice of Torin to I One Ask or One Vars to just a single person Breck? Did think, you think I that think, was effective? Think I think the cool? places I had the most fun with it was when um, One Ask was still multiple, and you would get like flowing from one sentence. I saw this, and then this thing happened, and the guy turned over to me, and then you realize that that was in a different room, or you know, yeah, somewhere when, on the other side of the city. Yeah, or like an orbit. You're you're getting different perspective of okay, in orbit, I'm doing this thing as the ship, and I can I've got a body over here in this part of the city that's viewing this thing, while I'm also like have a body over here who's explaining what that person's seeing to my human captain over there, um, or human lieutenant. I really liked that. And then when they start breaking down the communication and kind of blocking that stuff, it got, it really ratcheted up the tension um, in quite an interesting way. And I thought that was probably the best part of the book was after that, you know, war crime that kind of explains how the justice of Torin gets turned into Breck um, was a great, great part of the book. And I thought that was the best part where it kind of all dovetailed together 
in terms of how you saw the different perceptions and how the ship perceived existence really one of the things that i like the most about um science fiction is the ability to give us like let us empathize with things that are totally non-human like i really liked how we were basically convincingly thrust into bee society in the bees um and i I thought that um and lucky did such a good job like you said with the layered perspectives of ship and unit and individual ancillaries that in the few instances where the the communication between those entities breaks down and they're stuck in single perspective bodies the exact type of bodies that we have all had our entire lives so the only perspectives we know by that point it actually felt alien and limiting and weird and i thought that was really cool yeah it reminded me somewhat we also talked about like first i love stories that are about um robots or computers trying to become human or extend the human experience like blade runner stuff like that that's really in my wheelhouse and I thought that this book was a good example of that. Um, but it also reminded me a lot of another similar thing, Ghost in the Shell, that really gets into those ideas of what are the ramifications of computerized intelligence and having a distributed intelligence and how does that remove your experience away from being human but also expand it? And so I thought the ship was a great example of that, of you've got one consciousness separated out into... Um, you know, different like the the bodies itself, the ancillary bodies are almost like fingers and expressions of it. But then it all gets solidified down into this one. But at the same time, you've got Ananda Manai, which has one consciousness, but seemingly two different wills at least that two. are at war with each other. At least two, the two that we know of, that aren't even aware of each other necessarily all the time. That's a really fascinating idea of what the uh, ramifications of you know excellent Wi-Fi and memory capacity. It she got me. Have. She is literally of two minds about something. <laughs> hey oh, yes. it, uh, it got me thinking, actually. Um, in the future, when uh, perhaps this sort of thing is technologically feasible, and I could even see people, like, we've already got VR. I could see people, like, within the next 20 years, get so used to being able to see things from multiple people's perspectives that it's disorienting when they can't. I could see, like, anti-riot police or stuff, you know, or using you know, cell phone signal blockers to disperse crowds just because they, you know, they're cutting off various bits of people's consciousness. The the hive mind is the ultimate expression of the social network. (laughs) Exactly. Well, no, like when you scroll through Twitter, it sort of is something like that. You can see those kinds of, you're seeing a bunch of different viewpoints all put into one solidified stream or on a Facebook page or something like that. This is a very primitive manifestation of what it could possibly be. But it's not going to, I think, yeah. Hmm? It's going to be soon. Yeah, yeah. This, but I mean, yeah. we, we advance very rapidly all the time. What I'm saying is, this is just the beginning of something like that. And the, you know, like you said, the possibilities are very interesting. Yeah. I thought that's, that's, I, I felt sometimes the book in its world building wasn't as in depth or as weird as that I would like it to be. Um, because some of the stuff just felt like, it didn't have a purpose to be there. Like the T that's how the gender felt for me, et cetera. Like I already went over, but there's other things that did really well. I thought the consciousness of Breck and one ask and justice of Torin, because it's all the same thing. Very interesting. An underman being at war with herself was fantastic. Um, I thought really, really interesting ideas that were uh, fully fleshed out there. Mm-hmm. I yeah. Really I, I, I think that was my, my big takeaway. This was actually my second time reviewing the book. And I think the thing I came away with, wanting most was to know more about this world and you know outside of just the uh, the personal experience of breck and what she saw in this one part of her journey well the good news is it's the beginning of the trilogy isn't everything yep um it, yeah, everything is uh one thing i agree with you george one thing that i really 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 like in sci-fi and fiction in general is brief unexplained glimpses that show that the world is way weirder than the little story that we're looking at yeah there's a line where um i think it's breck is talking about how the whole radchai empire started because uh this ananda Minai, the emperor um decided that she needed to expand the bubble of space around the radchai homeworld to protect it 
because it was you know the it was pure and it was the whole center of civilization and it's mentioned offhand that uh raj i guess the homeworld itself is a dyson sphere that's yes. like totally self-contained and it's not clear that the people living inside it even know about the empire around them that exists solely to protect them from everything else oh i didn't even yes, think that about was... that that is kind of an interesting that was a great detail, and that was the stuff I wanted more of. That's what I felt was lacking at certain points in the book. And that was such a great, weird idea. Like, the, yeah, the very citizenry, the core citizenry, has no experience with the rest of this outside world, just lives in this Dyson sphere and just does, and is totally isolated from the rest of the universe. And that this emperor, Anander Minai, is, you know, they don't even know what she's doing necessarily. Who knows? Or maybe they're all her. You know, there's just a lot of different possibilities. Um I thought that was fascinating. And that's also like, similarly, the way that ancillaries are made, um, which is that basically from the worlds that they conquer, they take the people that they kill, or I think they need, no, they have to be alive. Yeah, they need them alive. They they take, was it like revolutionaries? It was people who were dissidents, I believe. And they basically just froze them for thousands of years in the vaults of the ship and just thawed them out whenever they needed to fill the ancillary ranks. And there's a really creepy moment where they're, bringing someone out of the freezer and they're sort of beginning to insert justice of Torin's consciousness into this body. And there's this particular medic who doesn't like justice of Torin and is kind of rough with the ancillaries. And it's, it's a really creepy, horrifying scene. And it also lets you see what the ancillaries represent to conquered populations as they're seeing literal corpses walking around with a strange intelligence. Those were the moments where I thought the book really shined was that, that weirdness. Yeah, that was a good and, scene. I liked that a lot. Yeah, that's the ones where I thought the, the the plot, the cultural details tied in together with the plot and, you know, worked out rather than just being kind of a tick, for lack of a better term. Um, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff like that. Could have been more, but it was still pretty, pretty nice stuff. Yeah. Um, anything else uh, about the like the plot or world building, I guess, before we go into other stuff? Um, what do you guys think about the characters? Was there, I mean, you see everything from Breck's point of view. And I thought that one of her lieutenants, Lieutenant On, is it? Mm-hmm. Who kind of is the part of this precipitating event and kind of what fuels Breck's later quest. I liked the two of them. Everyone else I felt was kind of maybe a little weakly drawn. Do you agree? Um, I think that's true of a lot of stuff in the book. Um, the The plot was not incredibly convoluted. I mean, it was, you know, evil empire bad. Um, sol- or betrayed soldier will get revenge. Well, it's not so much evil empire so much. I mean, it's clear well, that the empire, like any empires, it does terrible things as it's expanding. Um, that's true. She's yes. not really against the empire. She's just against the emperor. <laughs> well, I think that's the one and the same, though. It's kind of. I mean, it's it's though. kind of it's kind of interesting in the case of an immortal autocrat. Yeah, I that's mean, true. an immortal dispersed autocrat. <laughs> yes, yeah. um, but anyway, Network yeah, I mean, redundant autocrat, a rated, <laughs> a rated think, emperor. I think, and Severin or Severian or whatever he is his case. I think there's a little bit of an arc there that I kind of got into and. I mean, for half the time, he's just being a surly drug addict going through withdrawal. Yeah. yeah. So he's not particularly likable. But, um... I mean, yeah, yeah so this, 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 there's, there wasn't a lot of time spent on characterization for the other... for a lot of the other characters that showed up. Um, again, maybe that's intentional, just uh, because... Maybe the ship doesn't have a lot of insight into people it's not directly connected to. Uh, because that's something she makes a point about mentioning uh, when she gets cut off, as she no longer knows how her officers are feeling. Yeah, because that's one of the things is, as a ship, there's artificial intelligences throughout the Empire that are attached to ships and stations and etc. And they have access to basically everybody's biometrics so they can they're very emotionally intelligent just in terms of that they can see 
what someone's saying, but they can also see what their actual emotional reaction is and muscle tension and heartbeats and read them like a lie detector. Yeah, Yeah. pretty much. So I can see if they're hiding something or being weird or stressed or embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And when once one esque turns into Breck or justice of Torin turns into Breck, they lose access to all of that. Mm -hmm. So it's like losing one of your senses almost, I think. Yeah, well, that's definitely how uh, how Breck slash Justice of Torn perceives it when uh, when that first time when the uh, communications get disrupted. Yeah, but I think that's one of the going back to the idea of character arc is I don't think Justice of Torn necessarily has an arc in a conventional sense, unless you guys feel differently. Severity indefinitely does, um, but at the end, Justice of Torn almost comes back around to itself. The book ends with kind of this really fatalistic quote that I'm going to paraphrase, but it's something like, I found myself where I always was, one foot in front of the other with no choices to make or something like that, which was a kind of a sad, chilling ending. But also we're seeing the first part, the first third of a trilogy. So maybe most likely Breck's arc will be much longer than just one book. Well, which is always the interesting thing to see in a trilogy is how much the scope expands after you get past the... uh the first one yeah Yeah. i've started reading i've got like 20 pages into the next book but i haven't gotten farther than that yet um that's a that's a question are do you plan to read the entire trilogy if this is enough to hook you basically yeah i'd say so i'm definitely curious enough about the world to check the next one out i mean i especially want to know more about the uh the presker oh yes i would love to see more of the aliens because Um, because like you did such a great job with the the AI stuff, the multiple perspectives when she uh, she worked that in there. I'm interested to see what she does with that. On the other hand, that's a big challenge because, you know, after you've gone that far with a still comparatively human perspective, how do you try and make something seem distinctly different enough to be a different species entirely? Well, and also I felt that there was something that Nathan said about the peripheral that I felt sort of about this book reading it, which is the relative stakes and tension um weren't that high throughout the course of this book. A lot of it is just Breck returning to Raj space while having flashbacks. And her way back is kind of a little rough because she's saddled with this drug addict that she's taking care of. And then, um, you know, it's just kind of a dangerous in and of itself, but she's got all this money. She's also, you know, got armor. So she's never really in, in any sort of real physical danger. So, up until the very end, there wasn't anything that's like, oh my God, you know, how are they going to get through this one? It wasn't that sort of a story. But with the Presker and, and, and this alien threat that it's highly intimated is very powerful and basically un, an alien mind process that can't be understood. So even negotiation is very difficult. But for some reason, they've stopped incurred, you know, stopped going into Reg space and that's possibly what's fueling these reforms and that's what's fueling all of the big picture stuff. And that's what I'd really like to dig into is what's going on with these guys and how is that going to play out? Cause I think that's going to be the big stakes. Like, okay, we've got a galactic empire. Here's the galaxy's view of things. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, I wanted to go back briefly to you saying justice of Torin or Breck didn't really have an arc. I think that although part of, that's partially true. Um, I think there is a little bit of an arc. I think, um, at the beginning, you know, she's just, she's a ship, an AI, you know, some personality, but ultimately obeying, you know, following orders and just performing a duty. You know, one of her units, one esque, has a weird habit of singing, like collecting songs in different planets. And then I'm going to correct that slightly because it's, I, I think it's one esque refers to the individual unit. Whereas esque is the squad. Oh as yeah, a whole, squad esque. Right? Sorry. So it's actually the whole squad that likes to sing because that's one of the weird things about the ship is Justice of Torin is the ship. No, I think one esque is the squad. I think it's like one esque one and then one esque two. Yeah, because if if one esque is destroyed, they thaw out two esque. The whole okay. unit. Okay, I got you then. Yeah. Then yeah. Then but one esque. We need to make clear that one esque refers to like twenty ancillary bodies. Yeah. Because one of the cool things about the singing is that it's the singing. It's one entity singing through 20 different voices or what have you. Yeah. But um, 
you know, it, it, so so on a ship level, there's a personality, but on a unit level, there's a sort of a, the capability for a different personality. And I think once Breck um, is distilled down to a single unit, she spends 20 years living as a solitary, not a solitary, but like a singleton, a single unit, and develops, you know, a personality. I think that the ship has a personality, though, because it, they, they do talk about how sort of there's these legendary stories earlier in the empire of ship AIs getting so attached to their captains that when their captain dies, the ships go rogue and break off. They don't just follow orders. They have, and Anderman and I make, makes a point of saying they have to have personalities, otherwise they don't care about anything yeah. and they're useless. And so that there's a push pull between making them compliant and able to follow orders, but also making them invested enough in stuff that they can be trusted to do things and have any sort of intelligence. So I thought that was a really interesting bit too about the depressed starships just yeah. wandering through intergalactic space for thousands of years in mourning. And and they say like, oh, well, that doesn't happen anymore. And an Anderman eyes, like, well, they kind of do because that's kind of what happens to Breck, is that it's 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 Justice of Torin's attachment to this one lieutenant that's in charge of one esque during this war crime incident that creates, coupled with the you know loss of consciousness that that creates this urge for Breck to, you know, you know, that creates the event that allows Breck to basically exist as a solitary unit. But there is definitely a personality that exists before that. And they also yeah. talk about how certain ships and certain stations will prefer certain lieutenants and captains more than others and will make things easy for the ones they like and not quite as easy and functional for the ones they don't like. Well, that kind of gets into something I wanted to ask you guys about, because uh, one of the things that struck me is a scene where Brex having a conversation with the doctor on the ice planet, and the doctor keeps coming back to the fact that the body of Breck very much used to be someone else on some other planet that lost, essentially, in a rebellion against the, or pr trying to prevent an invasion of the Radshai. And the doctor seems to say, think that the the former person's personality comes out a lot more than Breck admits it does. And yeah. as I was kind of, you know, reading and keeping that in mind, I kind of was thinking, oh, well, yeah, I could see, you know, when the, when the ship was the ship, it was a little bit more flip and a little bit more obedient, but it's a lot more sarcastic and kind of angry now that Lieutenant On is dead. And then... Like uh, like you said, George, by the end, it seems like it's kind of come back around. So I was kind of wondering if that was maybe some kind of attempt to show the ship kind of going, or the person behind the ship maybe trying to go through a kind of a grieving process for Lieutenant On, or if I was just kind of projecting that. I think it could be sort of, you'd brought up off mic earlier the idea of an unreliable narrator. And there's definitely stuff that's left out um that other characters reference like there's like we know that one esque likes to sing and likes to do these songs and that plays off in the plot but there's a great part where nander manai speaks directly to breck and is like it took me a while to figure out who you were once you got on board this station where we are now but one of the things that let me know is you exactly was because you keep humming constantly and you don't even seem to be aware of that but you're always humming and it's really annoying and <laughs> Then Severian later is also like, there's no way that this could be a unit from Justice of Tor and One-esque because its voice is bad and it's a terrible singer and only a medic who really hated the lieutenant running that unit would would pick out this ancillary body, which is exactly what happened is the medic didn't like um, Lieutenant On, so they thought out a body that sang poorly. Yeah. <laughs> but that you don't get any sense from Breck that she thinks her singing is bad even while she's singing, but other characters kind of comment on it later. So there's definitely stuff that's happening outside of the narrator's periphery that we're not privy to until someone brings it up, which is interesting. Yeah. And I think that some of the, this, are you a ship or are you this body that your consciousness is in? And what's the relationship between consciousness and body is something that is subtly played out there. And that's, that's something else that's interesting too, that I think did come out of the pronouns a little bit. Now that I sit here and think about that question a little bit more, is there are actually very few characters where we ever get a real definitive answer on what gender they are, since we can only find out by someone else referring to them by that pronoun. But to me, it never really mattered in the sense that, 
what would it matter if they were all male versus if they were all female versus if there was a mix? Like there was never any kind of dynamic that seemed to matter whether gender was one way or another well, on, in it for me. On non-Raj planets, it seemed more important. But the whole point of Raj space is that, you know, gender doesn't matter. Well, I think what I was going for was that if you actually spend the time to try and figure it out just by reading, I mean, you Severian can really see the, the dearth of information. Like, yeah, and he's one of the few times you get a real definitive answer from someone or on someone. Well, why does it matter that Severian is male? It doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah, which that's is what, the whole point. Well, which is why I think the the pronoun. I agree with you, but in that one sense, the pronoun thing does lack significance within the story. I was more just saying from the perspective of me personally trying to assign it just as kind of a mental exercise. I I liked it because, I mean, even if it doesn't necessarily have a big plot uh, influence, it's it's challenging the default assumptions, which in our society and in sci-fi in general skew heavily male. Like in, in books and in movies, in games, you know. It's uh, protagonists and most people, like most speaking roles in movies are men. Most video game protagonists, you know, most sci-fi protagonists. Um, and even just, even if they're still male in this book, at least the default, just, you know, flipping our default assumptions around as far as... But that's not how the society works. No, it doesn't. It's... it's just it's just putting the reader off, a little bit off of the comfort zone. Not... It didn't put me off at all. Like, it just, it just to me, it's everyone seemed female... Like gender had such had no impact, so it didn't matter whether they were male or female in the book or anything. It was just we use the female pronoun. So what? Gender's tough for me. Like I, I still don't see any kind of like deeper meaning to it. it. It didn't make me think of anything. It was just kind of like, oh, here's a tick that we're doing. I think that might be saying something. I'm not sure if that's saying something that the book was written with the assumption that you'd be trying to figure it out and. It just didn't matter to you, George, or or what? Because I, like I was saying, I didn't really start to play around with the idea that much at all until I actually tried to assign genders to the different characters. Yeah, Which you're right, is not necessary and doesn't really make a big difference from the plot. It might play out differently. I think they're trying to televise it. And there's something that we haven't talked about, but they also mention briefly that... Um, it's fashionable in the Empire to be darker skinned. Like that's what the, the uh, you know, the most fanciful houses and, and the, the most prestigious houses, the people tend towards more dark skin and stuff like that. And so obviously, you know, that's an attempt by the author to kind of put things on their head, I suppose. I don't think that in text it necessarily comes out in a way that was interesting to me. Whereas if you saw it in a... Uh, you know, they're trying to turn into a TV show. If you saw this in a visual perspective, it might be a little bit more different, a little bit more forceful. Do you think to me, I didn't find it off-putting or or strange. Do you think they would carry that through in a TV show? According to Wikipedia and like he spoke directly with the producers about that. And, and they were very receptive to the idea of having, you know, more female and darker skin protagonists, whether that'll actually happen. Who knows? But if they want to stay true to the text, it will. Yeah. I just think about the, um, there was an Earthsea adaptation of Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, Earthsea. And in Earthsea, it's very explicit that most of the civilized world has dark skin, except for these, like, white-skinned barbarians at the periphery. But everyone in the Earthsea television adaptation was white. Yeah. Um, speaking of Le Guin, actually, is it Le Guin? Le Guin? I'm not actually... I don't know how it's pronounced. No I don't know how it's spelled. Um, I found... Uh, the gender thing uh kind of similar to uh it reminded me of left hand of darkness do you guys read that book i have nope. not oh it's so good it's it is so good it's a really it's classic sci-fi um it's about a human um who is a I believe diplomat assigned to a planet that has um, gender changes. Um, there's no fixed genders. It's like, um, or rather no fixed sexes, excuse me. It just depends on what time of the year it is. You know, people turn male or female or neutral at varying times of the breeding cycle. And for the, the protagonist who's, you know, 
human male who's always male. It's very deeply weird for the society. Mm. Um, it also s sort of reminded me of, uh, in a number of ways, this book reminded me of Ian Banks' culture novels. But um, yes. specific yeah. specifically, I mean, obviously I how see that. the ships being AIs, um, although in the culture they're actually citizens and don't have ancillaries. But um, I was I was actually going to point out that difference earlier when we were talking about it a little bit, but that the, the ship simultaneously has that kind of ship perspective that they do in the culture books, but it also has the pers simultaneously has the perspective of being in a human body, which yeah. this in AI research is a big question. You know, how does the the physical manifestation actually affect the uh, the mind and the way it works? That's an, that's an interesting question. Yes. Yeah. And I, um, I'm sorry. Go on. Sorry, I, I derailed your culture point, but oh, it's okay. It actually reminded me. Um, specifically, one of the culture books, the player of games, uh, has a culture emissary, a, a drone, and a human go to um, a different empire in a different galaxy. I think even to participate in a gaming tournament, and that society has three sexes: uh, male, female, and the dominant one. Uh, which is neither, um, but they just use the male pronoun for that uh, sex as well, which I thought for a while was weird, but I guess it's better than, or it, it seemed less unwieldy than it. Hmm. Or some, you know, non-gender specific or gender neutral pronoun like uh, we use occasionally here. Well, that's why I thought that, I thought that Octavia Butler, when we did... Um... Xenogenesis? Xenogenesis had made me think, and part of it's because that was just so forcefully about gender and sex, was much made me think a lot more about this. And this one didn't really make me think anything about it. And there's other like there's also like a Glass House. I was Charles I was going to bring up Glass House as a, as a good yeah. one for people, you know, being Which, able to switch like, genders and then being cast into a specific gender. Yeah, like in to the be culture, pedantic, switching sexes. You're, you're dealing with well, no, it's 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 a variety of things. It's sex and gender. It's, you can literally switch your body and switch your whole mentality and everything is fluid. Um, which is very tied into this post singularity idea of in these post singularity societies that are created in these books. And we get the idea that Raj space seems to be somewhat post singularity yet. They never really go really fully in depth into that. That's my problem is they don't go really fully in depth into the culture. And you can say, Oh, we didn't spend as much time there, but we did spend our entirety of the book with a Raj viewpoint character. I don't really still get a good grasp of how Raj society works. I know that they have patronage systems and a house system, which is very familiar. They like to drink tea. They wear gloves. They have a polytheistic have a religion, religion. Yeah. That yeah. absorbs, that, easily absorbs conquered religions. I thought it was monotheistic. Uh, it's polytheistic, monotheistic. It's got... I think it's one god with a ton of different aspects. Yeah, I was going to yes. say, they, they have their one god, Amat, and they have several aspects of Amat. Because they do they make have, a weird thing about how And they also kind of weird. absorb the pantheon of conquered planets as aspects of Amat. Yeah. Except in yeah. maybe one case that's noted in the book, which is said is somehow incompatible with that view, but it's never really made clear why i think because it's monotheistic explicitly monotheistic i think is that it yeah i think mm, i don't know maybe but it's all these these are all details that were given about raj society raj culture really but i don't have a good feel for what raj culture actually is it's not as an it you've details but they never came into a cohesive hole for me I never felt like i was living there and reading about it and so like how okay you've got this economic system that has patronage and has favors and has status between these older more established houses and these newer less conservative ones but what's their economic system like is it capitalistic is it is it post scarcity because they seem to have all of this artificial intelligence and these different things but they need to be fueled by annexation and i just didn't have a good grasp on how this you know old old thousands of year old culture was and i found i wanted those details to really come together as a whole and it never did for me that was yeah. that was the one thing i found frustrating I, th I think i just kind of ended up seeing it as kind of basically the roman empire yeah yeah but that was you know 
me finding an analogy. I have no idea if that was what like it was. was really going for. If that was just it me, was. you know. Yeah. She writes. She had an interview at the end of the Kindle edition. Um, I'm going to pull up the quote if I can, because she does specifically stay say that she was looking for towards Rome for the kind of syncretic nature of the, uh, um, you know, religion and the ideas and empire, but she wanted to depart from that. I'm just not sure how fully she did. Yeah. Well, I, I was kind of thinking that and the way there was also, it seemed uh, kind of an element of ancestor worship to their religion. Yeah. Here with she their, says. Everyone had private shrines that they, you know, had their own mini pantheon that they preferred to pray to. I'm not sure. So they're asking her, can you tell us what inspired the Ratch? And she says, I'm not sure I could say truthfully that any particular real world example inspired the Ratch. It was built piece by piece as time went by. That said, some of those pieces did come from the real world. I took a number of things from the Romans. Though their theology isn't particularly Roman, the Radshai attitude towards religion is fairly similar, particularly the way of gods of conquered people can be integrated, blah, 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 blah. Um... And then she says, the Romans have provided a lot of writers with a model for various interstellar empires, of course, and no wonder. The Roman Empire is a really good example of a large empire that in one form or another functioned for a great long time over a large area. Then she talks about how you can break it down into the Principate and the Republic and all this cool stuff that happens. And they're very easy for Westerners to grasp because they're kind of the foundation of that. Mm -hmm. But then she says, I didn't want my future, however fanciful it was, to be entirely European. The Radshai aren't meant to be Romans in space. And so... Uh, my question would be, do you think she fully gets away from Romans in space? I think I would need an example of something that was from a non-Roman empire, or maybe a non-British empire, which I don't think is super I mean, different. Tea ceremonies? Um, elaborate dress? Uh, like Tea ceremonies the British do. Uh, well, yeah, but I, this seemed more like... More like um, Japanese, yeah. like Shinto. Yeah, but these are to me that these are all analogs. Yeah, I mean, they're not truly strange or different. Yeah, for something that's supposed to be thousands yeah. and thousands of years in the future. I it mean, it didn't push the envelope at all. I mean, assuming that the Roman Empire had the same leader for the entire time, uh, that's a little different. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it is that's interesting an idea to see um, the if you if you view the Raj Empire as the the, the the applied will of one entity and now it's being split there's there's a reform camp that's stopping the annexations and stopping the ancillaries and making peace and you know appointing um officers not just based on who their their house is but on like an aptitude test and then there's there's like an old conservative guard but they're the, they're aspects of the same person i thought that's interesting yeah it's like a pers- no, that's... personal development as imperial reform. Or a, yeah, that's yeah. where my frustration butts up against. There are some parts that I think were brilliant versus some parts that I think were just merely good or slightly undercooked. And part of that's also me coming to it with pretty high expectations because of all of the awards it got yeah. and kind of the hype that it got. That I wanted it to be excellent throughout. I think it was very, very good. I think that it could have really boosted stuff. Like, I think it could have said some very interesting things about gender. To me, it just didn't. Um, it did say some very interesting things about consciousness and humanity. And I just wish, you know, everything had been pushed that way for me. You know, this is a book I enjoyed. This is a book I plan on reading the other two in the series. Not immediately, but it's definitely things that I'm going to follow up on. Um, and it's one I've definitely recommended to other people to read, like in the store and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Although it's a hard one to describe to sell to people. I had a much easier time selling uh, The Name of the Wind <laughs> than this one. Gary Stew embarks on an adventure. No, I oh, is that how you I, I like, is that how you feel about that? No, I, I, I like Name of the Wind. I, I do. That was just poking a little bit of fun. Because like I was trying, I was I was trying to explain this book to someone who was looking for something interesting in sci-fi and didn't have any parameters. They liked to read Steinbeck and sci-fi, and that's all I was given. And I was like, "Ha! Huh. I know in my section I've got ancillary justice. I'm reading it. It's about a ship that's human and um interesting. And then Name of the Wind was much easier to describe. It's a coming of age story of a guy who's good at literally everything." And people think it's like Harry Potter, even though it's really not. But there's a wizarding school, and that's something everyone can get into. Yeah. So, 
And there's some class stuff there that's very fun, blah, blah, blah. So yeah. he went and picked that up and that was okay. It was just like, it was just a little harder to explain this one in a way that you can distill down into a concept. It's about a ship that turned into a person that is against an empire and hangs out with things. I don't know. It's a book about a spaceship's quest for revenge. Yeah. That, that's that's probably the simplest and best way. That's a good yeah, one. Or a person who used line. to be a spaceship who goes on a quest for revenge. I like that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, shall we do um, closing thoughts and ratings? Sure. Unless we have... Uh, is there anything else? Do we want to announce the ne- next book or do that afterwards? I should do that afterwards. afterwards. Okay. Then I'm ready. My body is ready. Which of, which of your bodies is ready? Um, a couple of them are sleeping, so not those ones. Fair enough. I've got number 17 and number 2 ready. <laughs> good, good. Good. Good numbers. Yeah, I like them both. Yeah, they were in my fortune cookie I had for lunch. Well done. I hope you had more stuff for lunch. No, it's just otherwise sad a fortune cookie. It was a really big fortune cookie. It was like the size of a basketball. Wow. Nice. That's a really... Wow. Well, it's hollow. Oh, well, that's true. It's not a lot of surface. Or it's all surface. Uh, side note, I just remembered. I wanted to say that um, there was a a very brief... Uh, this uh, space station has an AI... And the AI gets pissy with Breck. And I just think that was really funny. It was very, yeah. very culture. Like, the ship is annoyed with you, so the elevators run slower for you. And you have to ask them specifically to go where you want them to go. Darn AI is always so passive-aggressive about everything. Well, no, it's a great touch because it, it, there's a specific detail. And they're, they're talking about how the ships, you know, they've got captains who are in charge of the whole ship. Human captains. And they have human lieutenants that oversee the individual groups like Oneask, etc., and it's saying that the ships wouldn't outright tell you if they didn't like you. In this case, it's the station telling Justice of Torin, which knows used to be a ship, that it annoyed it. But that they would, you know, lieutenants would find life all of a sudden would get very easier once they transferred to a different ship that didn't dislike them. But they wouldn't have any idea. It's just things suddenly started running more smoother and it was like, oh, they must not have liked me back there. Yeah. Which I think is very passive aggressive and lovely. Yeah. Anyway. Um, let me pull up the, the ratings sheet real quick. Oh man, the ratings sheet. It's a moment of truth. We should do a theme song for this. If anybody wants to write a theme song for us, for the ratings, uh, feel free to do so. I'm not musically inclined, so I can't. Rating sheet, rating sheet. George. Bring up that ratings Excel sheet. I have it. Um, we've got ratings for... 13 books. Wow, easy. This is a. Uh, 12 books. Will this be our 13th? Let me check. Um, one, two, three, four, five. Is there a row number? Sorry, this will be the 11th. There is a row number, but there's a couple of blank rows. Oh. Yeah, we skipped. Um, we didn't discuss the Wasp Factory. Uh, and then Peter's uh, second to last pick, we um, skipped. Because it was the peripheral and we got delayed and then we reread it later. That's true. So we have a You 11. could just fill in those blanks again. Yeah. With the ratings we gave it. Anyways, that doesn't matter. Yeah, Let's no, do some ratings. Good. Yes. Rating. George, what's your rating? I'm going to give it, uh, I'll say, three and a half out of five songs that were written a thousand years before you were born. There you go. Yes, Peter. That's an, old, that's an old song. Um, I was struggling over this one a bit, and I think I am going to give it a. I'm going to go with a seven out of ten part harmony. Nice, Peter. Have you ever been in a barbership court? Barbershop quartet. Barbership quartet. That's have perfect. you ever been in a barbership quartet? I've been. I would like to be a member of a barbership decade. Have you ever been on a barbership? I have not. They, you know, they, they ply the seaways performing haircuts and beard trimmings for, like, uh, trawlers and navies. And the occasional de-earring. And... Well, yes. now, I, I do have a grandfather who was a barber, and I do have a grandfather who once had a boat. I, I have two grandfathers who were both I, uh, I don't remember if they were, if there was any barbering on the boat. But uh, it's possible. They don't have space on the boats for barbering. That's why they employ barber ships. The space is all outside the boats. 
Yes. Or if they're space boats. Spaceships. This is a good tangent. What do you give it, Nathan? <laughs> I give it four out of five very expensive tea sets. Nice. Do you have a very expensive tea set? I do not have a very expensive tea set. Do you drink a lot of tea? I drink a lot of tea these days. I don't. I drink a lot of coffee and coffee-like substances. I've got a tea I also set drink a lot of coffee. made of rabbit skulls, but that was free. What? I kind of <laughs> Sorry, those. I was watching True Detective. In I a weird place. Not seen... I don't recall that happening in True Detective. Not even the new season. I haven't it seen did. the new season yet, or any part of it. I saw the first episode. It was awesome. That's all. We it's out should yet. talk about it uh, next, time we next, next time? episode. Definitely. Anyway, anyway. So, so we've rated. We've rated. We have rated. We've rated. What is the next book? I believe it's your pick, George. It is, in fact, my pick. And I've been feeling lately that while we've been doing a lot of science fictional things. The fantastical side has been feeling extremely left out. Um, but I would sad, like to continue. Sad fantasy. It is. It's very sad. I would like to continue our. Uh, something we weren't doing earlier in a lot of our lost episodes. We were just kind of willy nilly picking books. But we've been picking out a lot of recently published books now that we're actually live. Um, it's not really on purpose. We can always feel free to read older things should we feel so uh, inclined but this is a new release it's the grace of kings by ken Liu. it's uh the first part of the dandelion dynasty which i imagine is a trilogy although maybe it'll take on more in the form of a george r R. martin's type things it's fantasy so it could go all the way up to a robert jordan let's get a full 11 books in there who knows but yeah i'm looking forward to it it's um you know, high fantasy, it's, it's, it's the world building is specifically supposed to be more, uh, towards an imperial China kind of point of view rather than the stereotypical Tolkien-esque high fantasy middle ages type stuff. So that should be interesting. That's supposed to be pretty good. I have a question. Yes. Is there a wizard? I don't know if there's a wizard. I will say I've read the first couple pages and there's a man on a kite dropping bombs on a king, which is, or sorry, an emperor. And that's very cool. He's flying a kite around, chucking grenades about. So that's I'm all about people on kites doing stuff, especially if it's got grenades. So that's I'm down. Good. Exciting. It's, for, it's a very road warrior. Oh yeah. Yes. Oh, road warrior. The first or second best Mad Max movie. That would be an interesting conversation. I think we've had it. We have. I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to rate them. No. One over the other. They're both kind good. Of, they're both I have this problem. of their time. People will, will all the time, because I you know read a lot of basketball stuff, and they're always like, oh, is LeBron James the greatest player of all time, or is Michael Jordan? And it's like, people will be like, oh, Michael Jordan's got you know six rings, and LeBron's got two. But then it's like, well, Bill Russell has 11, or however many. Comparing things from different eras is just such a strange, problematic idea for me that it's not really worth doing. It's like it's, they can all... Be the greatest of their era, yeah. you know. It's like people who try to say who would win in a fight, the Enterprise or the Death Star or whatever. Yeah, Kinda the like Death that. Star, though. The Death Star. Uh, yeah. Huge mass. Because the Emperor would just get out and just force choke uh, everybody to death. He would just ride on the top of it and just choke all the Enterprise people. Well, I had something I was going to say and that blew it right With out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> the Enterprise doesn't have any snub fighters, so the Death Star would have no weaknesses true it's got it's turbo lasers science. and uh you know small fighters it, there are no that's what i'm saying there's no snub fighters yeah yeah no i agree like you take i don't know a wing of uh tie fighters and yeah the the there's just yeah enterprise even the defiant the defiant's not going to fit down that trench it's not going to hit that exhaust port no way no way sir i'll uh I'll, I'll say that since photons have no mass that Photon torpedoes should do a lot less damage than proton torpedoes. Exactly. <laughs> I forget which one uses which, but I think that you know. I do. Good. I think proton torpedoes is Star Wars, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Also concussion missiles. Yes. What we need to do is... Which hit you really hard in the head. We will... And this conversation is getting very stupid just very quickly. Extended universe and we will end game? it soon, listeners. Um, but what we need to do is... I've already got a bunch, and I think several of us have a bunch of the X-Wing miniatures. We'll buy a bunch of the Attack Wing Star Trek ones, and then we'll just like throw them at each other and see who 
who comes out victorious. This is going to be a fun afternoon. Oh, yeah. It will be. All right. And <laughs> on that, on that On that bombshell. We are, as always, lizard people, dear readers. Lizard people, dear readers. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. This has been Lizard People, Dear Readers, a production of Yellow Sonar Industries. Sound engineering is performed by Matthew Quiet of Podcom Services. All music written and performed by Stephen Edwards. Updates and information can be found at lizardpeopledearreaders.com. Contact us on Twitter at drlizardpeople or by email at lizardpeopledearreaders at gmail.com. Very few humans were harmed during the making of this production.